New laws have been introduced into the Parliament today that create a standalone criminal offence of coercive control. We know that coercive control is a dangerous uh, form of violence where perpetrators use fear um, and tactics to really control uh, their victim. And because of the stories that we have heard uh, from Sue and Lloyd Clark, uh, from uh, Vanessa Fowler and so many other family members, we know just how dangerous coercive control really is. We know that it is dangerous enough to be a crime now here in Queensland. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm joined by Colette Martin. You are going to hear an incredible real-life account of survival and resilience and courage and mental fortitude against all odds. Colette is a real shero who not only survived, but she protected others from being harmed and killed. And she's now helping so many more. And I also want to give a trigger warning. Viewer discretion is advised. And as I said, you never know who needs to hear this and it could save a life. Okay, so if you're ready and you're sitting comfortably, let's dive into this incredible interview with Colette Martin. And today is an incredible day in history because Queensland in Australia, they have now criminalised coercive control. It became a crime today. I know, and I, I did as well. And the government said, when I gave evidence three years ago now, they did commit after that and setting up a task force on women's safety and justice to legislate within four years, and they've actually done it quicker. And it's incredible testament to them and, uh, you know, the incredible families who've also given evidence that this has now become a crime because the women's minister says because it's so serious and dangerous that it should be. And of course, you know that firsthand yourself. So it's a momentous, I feel really proud across the world. People are waking up to why it's so important for, in particular, women and children, why it's so important. So do you want to start with saying a bit about your story and going back in time? Yeah, in 1997, I was almost murdered by my ex-boyfriend and I survived. And I have no doubt today that I survived to do this because everything's falling into place. People are listening. It's just an amazing journey for me after all that trauma. I'm so happy that you survived and I'm so happy that you're here talking with me. And I think it's a very important point to underline that others don't make it out. And you did. And you've been using your voice to create real change to help others. And I just think that's tremendous. So I firstly just want to say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But also, I'm in absolute awe of your strength and your courage and your mental fortitude to survive and now to thrive and help so many people. So thank you so much for using your voice and creating change. You're welcome again. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure. So shall we go back in, it was in 1997, wasn't it, that your life changed? What can you share about the relationship and what you understood of the relationship? And Because I've heard you say 
you ended the relationship, you thought that was the end of it. How did you meet him and what was going on? I met him here in uh, in Maryland. He was playing hockey. I met him there and just hit it off right away. I didn't see all those signs of the, you know, the narcissistic signs because I'd never been educated on any of that. And I, uh, so we started dating and, and at first, for the first seven months, it was like, kind of right? Like, he couldn't have loved me more. Like, he, we traveled with his friends to play hockey and stuff. And I didn't see all that stuff because I thought he loved me. But my mother, she, my mother knew right away. She told me right away, one day he's going to hurt me and. You know, I was 27 years old. First time I felt that I thought was love, right? When we were started dating, like he was really good to me. And we, stuff that I didn't realize was all the things that he was grooming me, right? He, he didn't live with me right away. Like I waited for about, I think it was like seven months. And then I let him move in with me. But he lived in Moncton and I lived here in Basin. And, um, he used to call me 20 times a day and I thought it was because he loved me. I didn't realize it was to see where I was and to control where I was. He did that, you know, like for months and I was oblivious to it. Like I didn't even realize that that's what was happening until I let him move in with me. And then I knew like all the signs, like that's when he started isolating me. He didn't want me to be around my family, but I, I never let that happen. And I had a little boy that was only five years old. And I I knew that I didn't have to put up with that. Like I like I shouldn't have let him move in with me, but I didn't see all that stuff until it was too late. After about seven months I let him move in with me. And that's when he started trying to control every aspect of my life. And he would belittle me. He would make me exercise. And I would think, well, it's good for me. So I didn't think it was a bad thing. He watched what I ate and it was also good for me. So that's all stuff that, you know, like he pretended he cared so much. So that's why he was doing that stuff. But he wanted to control every part of my life. And when I started resisting, he didn't like that. But for me, my family and my son were the most important things in my life. And I wasn't going to let him control me. So after letting him move in with me for a couple of months, I kicked him out and told him that was enough. And I remember that day, uh, Justin and my son and I, we danced for hours after he left. We just turned the music on and just, we were so happy, you know, and that's when I realized, like, oh God, like, I wasn't allowed to do anything. And I never realized it until that day. And I remember walking over to my grandmother's and she, I told them, I kicked them out. And she was really happy, you know. I didn't realize that all of this was going on around me. So things were good because I kicked him out. He left, he moved back to where he was from. And I think I kicked him out around right before Christmas, probably November. And he went back to, to his parents, stayed there for a couple of months, and then he moved back here where he used to live in Moncton. And um, 
when he came back, then he started calling and telling me that he loved me and that he wanted me back. He used to send me love letters, you know. I thought nothing of that. I thought, you know, and I would be firm with him and tell him that it was over. And I, you know, I didn't want any part of that, but I, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. But he had gone on with his life. He had another girlfriend who lived with somebody else. But one thing that he did before he left was he left some stuff behind. And I didn't realize that leaving that stuff behind was a way for him to come back. And he used to call and, and tell me, well, I'm going to go get the rest of my stuff if you don't want anything to do with me. And I would be, okay, but come get the rest of your stuff and then get. And uh, this one night when he called and said, I'm coming to get the rest of my stuff, I had an eerie feeling. And thank God I listened to that voice. Um, so I called my cousin and I asked her to come and spend the night. I did, and, you know, like I, I never thought for one minute that he would come and do what he did to me. But I just didn't want no, I didn't want to argue. I didn't want no, no fights. Like I just wanted him to come and get his things and leave. And I figured if there was somebody with me, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't say anything. He'd just take his stuff and leave. And thank God I did. But that night, we went to bed probably around 11 o'clock, me and my cousin. She slept in my son's bedroom. I slept in my bedroom and the son slept with me in my bed. And uh, at 11.40, I remember hearing a bang at my door. And it was a really loud, loud noise. And I, I didn't realize what it was. And I was in a deep sleep. So even when I come out of my door, I didn't know what's going on. And there she stood, two black holes in his head. You couldn't even see white in his eyes. And his hair was all ruffled. He, he looked like the devil. And he looked at me and said, tonight's the night you're going to die. And uh, I remember looking at him in, in disbelief. You know, this man that I thought I loved, that I thought loved me. He just told me he was going to kill me. <laughs> so I, I, you know, like I, I was looking at him and then I looked down and I put my head back up and trying to figure out what's he talking about, you know? And then all of a sudden I looked up again and saw his eyes go right to my night door. So I knew, right, I knew that's what he was going to do. So he went and grabbed the biggest knife in the door and um, I tried to make it there before him. I didn't. I could still see my hands hitting his hand, so he dropped the knife. But he didn't drop it. He turned me around. And just, it was just like a horror movie. Turned me around and set my throat. That's just absolutely horrific in terms of, you know, I, I feel it when you're describing it, of the utter terror and fear of someone turning up and as you described the eyes there was something about him that had changed and I do hear that from quite a lot of survivors that they could feel it just by looking at him that something was different but then to say you're going to die and go to grab a knife and then to cut your throat I mean it it is the stuff of horror movies but this is what happened to you and unfortunately you know it's not an uncommon story in terms of the pattern that you described and this sort of love bombing behavior and this whirlwind nature and this, is it love or is it control? 
and this constant, it's a feeling that it's love, but it's actually about controlling and regulating your behaviour. And it can be very confusing and conflicting, but where it can end up, even with time apart, it doesn't mean to say that person is any less dangerous. And you ended up fighting for your life. I mean, physically, you had to fight for your life. You fought him and then you fought for your life. So what happened next? Because I know he slit your throat, but you also had other injuries on your body. Yeah, yeah. Slit my throat and then I ran. Like I, my mom and dad just lived next door to me. So I tried to get to their house so they would call the police. And I was in such shock that I, did, I never realized, you know, that my cousin, she was already on the phone with the police. And uh, I... So I ran to try and get to my parents' house and he caught me before I got there. He dragged me back. When I got back to my house, my cousin said, oh, for God's sakes, put a towel around my neck so, so my son wouldn't see me. And I, I remember looking at her and I still feel like, I remember looking at her and thinking, what is she talking about? You know, like I didn't even realize how bad it was until I walked into the washroom to get the towel. Then I saw my throat was wide open. You could see the vitamins, see the wound pipe. This part of the skin had come up and the other part had fallen down. And it was uh, wide open. And um, so I started screaming and I ran. I uh, tried to run by him, I think that's when he grabbed me and uh, held me against the stairs and uh, he stabbed me again seven times. And uh, I fell backwards. I remember my cousin trying to hold my feet and he told her he would do the same thing to her. So I just told him to go back inside and take care of my son. And that's what she did and I just ran again. Um, so whilst you're badly injured, you're terrified for your cousin and, and for your son, and you're trying to protect them whilst he's doing this to you. My goodness. I mean, it's just incredible, Colette, what you did in those moments. And thank goodness you had that presence of mind. Of course, protective mum is always going to be thinking about your child, but also other people around you, even in those moments. But thank goodness she had called the police. Yeah, she was on, on the phone with the police and I didn't realise that. So the second time when I got to my mom's, I asked my mom to call the police and I told her not to open the door because she was going to open the door. I told her not to open the door and um, I told her just to call the police, but I didn't realise that my cousin was on the phone with the police all that time. And uh, so he, he caught me as I was at the door and dragged me back to the end of the driveway. And then he slashed my legs. He cut my wrist. He took the knife and he set his throat and his wrist. And he told me that we were going to go in his car and go away somewhere and we would die together. We did that together. That's what we did. I literally had to beg for my life, literally, on my knees, begging for my life. And I had to tell him that I still loved him. And then when I looked up, I saw 
invites from the things come. And I know it's going to be okay. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Wow. I mean, that's a, a lot for you to deal with in those moments and trying to risk manage him. And you're trying to talk him down and trying to say the things that de-escalate his behavior and give you a chance to survive and give your cousin and your son a chance and your mum not wanting to get them involved. You're constantly thinking about other people. It's just incredible. And thank goodness you had the presence of mind to say to your cousin, please come round. Something in your gut told you, irrespective of what you might rationalize it now, but something in your gut was telling you to have somebody else there and thank goodness that it turned out in the way that it did. I don't know whether many people would survive what you went through. And it's about the constant surviving, isn't it? It's the trauma thereafter, even whilst you're telling me this. But what an incredible, your thinking process in those moments. I mean, you could never train someone to think like that. You would never want to think that this could happen to you. I doubt you ever thought that it would happen to you. Not in a million years. 
I never ever thought that this would happen. You know, like even to this day, like I, I think he must have just lost it or whatever. Like I, I never expected that. I know now, and I don't think all these years ago. Like I, I don't think like even he's been out of prison now since two thousand and three, and before he was released from prison, I got a letter from the board of Canada telling me that he wasn't fit to be outside. And then like a month or a month and a half later, he was released. So since 2003, I've been, I know that he's out. I had to decide that I wasn't going to be scared anymore, but for a lot of years I was. For me, it's just like I had two choices. It's either I'd lay down and die, which I have fought so hard to live. I could still feel my feet. Like I could still feel the gravel under my feet from running. You know, I could still smell that blood. I could still hear myself screaming every day. And for me, it was, why would I go through all of that and fight so hard to just give up? So, and so I, just got up and fought back and this is where it brought me. Yes, and it's an incredible journey. Your your will to survive. That's what I'm hearing about, your will to survive that. And I remember talking to another survivor who experienced a, an attack as just as brutal as you described, and she said, I wasn't going to leave my children. And that's that's what made me survive in those moments. I was not going to let him take me from my children. And I just think that it's remarkable what you can do in those moments and what you did. And the, it, it didn't end there though, did it? You were, you were taken, the police arrived and you were taken to the hospital. And we talk about him and the release. I find that very interesting that you received a letter to say he's not fit to be in the wider society and then he's released. And perhaps we'll talk about that. But your will to survive and you're taken to hospital by the police or by the paramedics and... No, um, I, uh, when, when the police got there, he kept going because he needed to check out the scene, right? The police officer was by himself. And um, what happened is that Derek dropped the knife. I picked it up. So when the police got there, he told the police that I had cut his throat and set his wrist. So they needed to figure out what had happened. So I, I sat in the police vehicle for a couple of minutes because I needed to get away from him. And when the police got there, I had the knife in my hand, right? So he wasn't sure what was going on. And uh, so then as soon as my cousin came out and she said, this is what happened, uh, everything was, you know, they put him in the police car, they took him away and put me in the ambulance and took me to the hospital. So he, we would call that Darvo. He Darvoed you at the scene. He reversed the victim offender role to discredit you. I saw you talking about that not too long ago and I didn't have a clue what it was, but that's exactly what happened to me. I had never heard that before I heard you. And that's exactly what he did when the police got there. He dropped the knife and I didn't, when... We saw the lights of the police car. He dropped the knife because I told them it was over and he was done. 
And um, of course, I picked it up because I didn't want him to cut me anymore. It already slit my throat and stabbed me all those times, cut my wrist and slashed me leg. And when he dropped a knife, I had no other choice. I had to pick it up. But when the police got there, I had the knife in my hand. He got to the police before me and he said, she slit my throat and she, and she slit my wrist. And so we needed to figure out what had happened. So I have no ill will against anybody. that couldn't. I, I was safer in the police car than I was anywhere else anyway. You know what I mean? We just needed to figure out what had happened. And um, all of a sudden, he, after my cousin came and she told the police what had happened, and she told, and one thing is really weird that my sister, we were talking about that not too long ago again. And I had a towel around my neck and it was like 12 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. So it was dark. So nobody could see, like even my sister couldn't see that there was blood on me. She didn't even know what was going on. And uh, she said, like, when I got there, but she says as soon as the ambulance got there, then it just started gushing out. So it was the adrenaline. It was connected by, that's what it was. And, and I know that now, but I have to tell you that when I, I look back now, like, I remember, and I remember this from the beginning, like, I remember everything being in real slow motion. I remember even thinking, am I dead or am I alive? You know what I mean? I was watching him stab me. So I didn't know what was going on. And, and the knife would hit my chest and it would bounce out. So I remember feeling like, oh my God, like I'm really being protected. And I remember seeing that reel, you know, how you see in horror films, how there's a reel and you see the whole thing flash in front of your eyes. I saw my whole life flash in front of my eyes. And I remember like everything being in slow motion and having time to think like, what's happening here? Like, am I dead? You know, because I, I couldn't understand of what was going on. But I remember not having no pain. I was scared, but I had no pain. And I think that's one thing that helped me get through all of this because I was really protected. Yeah, the adrenaline rushing through you and the, the trauma, the disassociation. At times you feel like you're looking down on it happening when it's actually happening to you. And this slow motion effect, it really is like time slows down in these traumatic events. It's very hard to describe to other people, isn't it? Just how slowly time feels like it's moving. It is, and it's hard for people to understand and, you know, like sometimes I, I look back or I think about what's happening right now and I'm like, oh my God, like it's, although my, my experience was very traumatic, I have to say that I've seen a lot of miracles and I think it's, it's very comforting for a lot of people to hear my story knowing that there's a lot of stuff that even though all those traumatic things happen, I'm able to say that happened to me. Yes, and you're also able to give hope to others because I'm looking at a miracle, looking at you, that you survived it and you're helping others and you're thriving. And 
it doesn't have to define you wholly in a in a negative way. I mean, there's a lot of work that has to be done, but thank goodness you had all those protective aspects to you. Like you didn't feel pain, but you felt fear. You knew this was a very dangerous situation. You know, I've trained many officers to go into those situations to assess what's going on. And I think it's interesting what you said about the towel, because you don't always see people's injuries. So when that's what I exactly what I talk to them about of you have to assess everything you have to ask the right questions and you have to assess everything that's going on not just what you're being told and who tells you the story first that's always interesting to pay attention to whose narrative becomes dominant I mean I've not seen it yet where a woman has slit the throat of a man in a physical altercation it's just physically almost impossible to do because of our physiology isn't it? The power imbalance makes it difficult for that to happen. So it's bringing a common sense approach and it can be the difference between life and death in those situations of who is the real victim here. The fact that he did that in those moments is actually very instructive about him and his risk and dangerousness. And it tells me he's, he's somebody who's done this many times before, as in He's used to abusing and getting away with it and having his story, his narrative, be the one that's believed. And we haven't got to sort of his history because I'm focused on you. And just in these moments, you did some incredible things for for you and for your son and for your cousin. And, you know, I don't want to lose sight of that because it's just incredible decision taking to save your life and to save theirs and to save your mum. Because often we see in these situations actually multiple people being harmed, this finality aspect to it. If I can't have you, no one will and I'll take everybody with me. If he was suicidal and that was his intention and he could have harmed so many more people. So you are a true shero in that because you de-escalated it. And I hope you realise how incredible you are to do that in those moments and how selfless you were. Thank you. Yeah, he did tell me that night while he was slashing my legs and when he caught my wrist and he did tell me if I can't have him with it as well. Those were exactly his words. And isn't it interesting that that's where I went to with his psychopathology that when someone acts in those ways, and sadly because I've seen it so many times before, that's where they are in this vengeful psychopathology of an entitlement, that I have a right to you. And it, it doesn't matter how much time has passed. And I think that's a very important point for survivors, but also for professionals, because too often I hear professionals say things like, well, it's been two months, it's been nine months, it's been a couple of years. If he was going to harm you, if he was going to do that, he would have done it by now. And that's not what I see in the cases, cases like yours. They will wait. They will bide their time. They want to get access and the opportunity. But if they're truly vengeful, then it could happen. And that's why risk assessment is so important that we keep risk assessing each aspect. Every time something's new or changes, it has to be risk assessed. In the UK, the DASH is used, the domestic abuse and stalking and harassment an honor-based violence risk model. In fact, I was just training a group of professionals to understand risk when there's domestic violence and when there's stalking and when there's coercive control, because as you know, Colette, these are the most dangerous of perpetrators because they will wait. And when they're committed, I mean, you opened the door and you knew something bad was going to happen, but I would argue you knew before you opened the door 
because your cousin came round. You knew that this wasn't a neutral situation. And he comes late at night and he may not have thought everything through. Normally a weapon is brought. He didn't do that. But he knows your house. He knows the layout and he goes to get the knife in your house. He did bring a knife with him. He brought one with him too? He used three different knives on me. The first one he used was from my drawer. The second one he brought with him, that's what he stabbed me with 37 times. And the third one, that's what he stashed me with. So he used two from my house and he had brought one with him. Okay, well that does, I mean, it's horrific, but it makes sense in the way that you and I would assess the behaviour that he goes there. It's a premeditated act. That tells us. You knew that when you opened the door, right? You described his eyes, but it was a premeditated act. And he had murder in mind. He may not have thought through every aspect of that. And sometimes things unfold differently in the reality, i.e. when you fight back and they don't expect you to fight back. But you did. You fought tooth and nail for your survival and for your families. But he told you what he was going to do. He had intention to do it. And if I can't have you, no one can. And then he tries to harm himself. I don't know how serious his injuries were, but yours were life-threatening. So let's talk about you, first of all. Yours were life-threatening. You're taken to hospital. Uh, yes, I was taken to the hospital and um, they had to stuff me with wet clouds all night to keep the skin alive. The doctor testified at my trial that half an inch more, he would have severed the Um yeah, that's how. For the grace of God, go I. I mean, you are a true survivor in every way and you know how lucky you are, but a lot of it also comes down to how you acted in those moments. So thank goodness. The skin, keeping that alive, I mean, that was some quick thinking to try and negate too much of the trauma to the skin and be able to repair the skin the, uh, the doctor, the attending physician, was a wonderful doctor. He said, Colette, he said, you're 27 years old. He said, I can't sew you back together because you'll have too much of a scar. And uh, so he, uh, he put a call out for a plastic surgeon to sew me back together. And I waited probably 12, maybe 14 hours to see this other doctor. While I was waiting, that's when they stopped me with the wet clouds. And it was very horrific. I could feel the air coming in and um, so much trauma. And then all the things you have to go through, you know, they, they take pictures of you and, you know, they need evidence. And, you know, like it's all stuff that needed to be done, but it doesn't make it any easier, especially after what you just lived through. So I get to this other hospital. And uh, when I get there, uh, the plastic surgeon wasn't the savior that I thought he would be. He told me that um, he asked, first thing, he asked me what I did to serve what I got. And then what he, you did to deserve what you got. Did I hear that right? He asked me what I did to serve, deserve what I got. Yeah. And then oh he told goodness. me, I think we've been having good girls, you know. That's what he told me. And That's disgraceful, truly. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. 
that's okay because now I can help others not have to go through that. You know, by sharing my story, I'm opening those doors so that women won't have to suffer for 24 years like I did in silence and feel like you deserve what you got or feel like you weren't a good girl. So that's why this happened to you. And I'll never forget those words. And it's like I always tell people when I go and share my story, scars heal, but those words never go away until I believed that I did nothing wrong. It took me a lot of years, a lot of years to believe that I did nothing wrong because we carry so much shame. And you, and you really feel like you're, really feel like you're, you can't, you can't speak because everywhere you try and share, people don't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear what happened. And, and to this day, it's still hard for people to hear, you know, a lot of people like don't want to hear it because it's very uncomfortable for them. Some people don't want to hear it because they're living it and they're hiding it. And that's why they don't want to hear it. But I always say, like, I'm going to share my story until I can't, until the end. And I'm not going to be silenced anymore. I didn't get this far to just get this done. I'm going to make a big impact. And I'm so glad that you are. It's so powerful what you just said, you know, that you're using those examples to turn it into a superpower to your strength to help other people. But I do want to just place it on the record. You did absolutely nothing wrong. And professionals saying comments like that is absolutely reprehensible to blame a victim at their point of trauma and to talk about good girls, which we still hear now. This is about societal's blame that's attributed, particularly to women, about what did you do to get that black eye? Good girls, well, if you behaved well, that wouldn't happen, rather than who did that to you? So if we change the language, it's a very subtle shift, but it shows and it tells you that the person's safe to talk to, that they get it and that they understand but we still have some way to go. So I'm still, you know, very grateful to you to lend your experience and to share that because it was never your shame. And that doctor, well, absolutely horrific. I would question who that doctor is and what they do at home if they think that that's something that's acceptable and you deserved it in some way. Because often it's not just people not wanting to hear because their own experience or it's hard. Sometimes it's because they're abusers too. And therefore it suits them to keep this blame and to keep women silent and not to say things and create this power imbalance, even in that, that moment of your trauma. And that's never okay. So I do just want to put that on the record. I spend a lot of time talking to as well, training professionals. And that first interaction you have as a victim, that could be the difference between whether you survive something and you go on to be a survivor. And like you said, the secondary trauma of those voice, that voice and those words in your head, it doesn't leave you. It was very hard to overcome that until I decided that it wasn't my fault. And it took me a lot of years. And, and you know what? It took the death of my mom to... The death of my mom and her last words to me to not be out of my trauma because losing my mom was the biggest trauma. 
Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your your mum passing. I hope she knew that it wasn't your fault. And then it in turn, you know that it was never your shame. It's all his. And I really want to see the shame and the blame and the burden of the responsibility and accountability shift to where it belongs. And the pivot to the perpetrator of why did he do that? What is going on? And how do you stop him from doing that to protect women and girls? Because I know just from you telling me about what he did, he has a history. I know that that's not the first time he's behaved abusively and violent to someone. That's why it's so important that when you have other professionals almost colluding with the perpetrator and silencing you, making you feel it's like something you did, we're never really going to root out these individuals. I'm jumping in here to wrap part one of this important interview with Colette. And look, I know it's a lot to process. It's a lot to think about. And it's uncomfortable, but we have to be confronted with the reality of what it's like for so many and the risks and dangers of coercive control and the perpetrators and the fact that we must focus on them. How do we stop them? How do we prevent them from escalating their behaviour? That's really important that we answer that question and we stop focusing on the victims and blaming them and shaming them. And it's not your blame and it's not your shame. If you are being subjected to domestic abuse or coercive control, it's not your shame and it's not your secret to keep. There are people trained to help you all across the world. And I'll put the helpline numbers in the description. So please know you're not alone. In part two, you'll hear more from Colette and I as we talk about Claire Wood. Claire Wood was murdered in 2009 by a man that she met on Facebook. She didn't know him, she didn't know his history, and things escalated pretty quickly. And her father campaigned for Claire's Law. And we're going to talk about that because it's now in Canada. And we'll also talk about some of the other things that Colette and I are doing to better protect victims. So you really don't want to miss that. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.